before there was such a massive wave of people writing and speaking and living out their convictions as, as post-evangelicals, um, that process of deconstruction and subsequent reconstruction uh, was lonely for, for so many. Mm-hmm. Except, um, you know, as I look back at church history, I began to look at other figures in the past who felt strong convictions about the theological systems that had been handed down to them. And in the same way, you found Dorothy Day. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable how an individual bucking the conventional systems can really bring about uh, change. Um, so talk to us about some of the impact she made, um, you know, through her work. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Crump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is D.L. Mayfield. She is an author with books such as The Myth of the American Dream and Assimilation or Go Home. D.L. contributes to Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Washington Post, and Vox. She is a co-host of two podcasts, The Prophetic Imagination Station and the Faith and Justice Network podcast. D.L., thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, minus the fact that when I said Vox, it sounded like Fox, which would be like for your audience, like, oh, she contributes to Fox. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably wouldn't want me, but you know. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. You never know if it pays the bills, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, for those that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit more about yourself. 
Yeah, so I have uh, been a freelance writer for about the past 12 years, mostly writing in, uh, yeah, white evangelical spaces. I grew up pastor's kid in the United States, was homeschooled, you know, have quite the background um, in all that. And like a lot of people, I have spent the last decade or so just really grappling with uh, the limitations of white evangelicalism and and honestly just dealing with a ton of cognitive dissonance right with saying I I have this faith um, but I'm not seeing how you know lived out it actually is an ethic of neighborliness and and struggling with that so that's kind of uh my existential background. I'm also just, you know, a wife and a mom and I, I live on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. And yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, continuing to talk to people who are like ex-pastor's kids, or I guess still pastor's kids, um, you know, gives me hope that maybe I'm not screwing up my kids and sending them down a horrible road. <laughs> you, you seem to have turned out pretty normal. Well, I mean, how, how into this do we want to get? Because <laughs> I, I will say, you know, the my last book uh, was called the myth of the american dream and my dad is still uh, you know an evangelical pastor lives you know 7 minutes from my house and you know he has not read my book and he uh, all he's told me was I-, I just hope you're not writing a book about socialism so if that gives you <laughs> some insight into what it's like um to be me and a lot of other people right who grew up in white evangelicalism and if you start to kind of pull the threads of critique you're not only like doing this on an inward level on like a theological level but you're also threatening right your community your family um all of these things so it's it's a pretty it's a pretty fraught time for a lot of us and and i'm right there i'm right there if, if people are listening and in that space well, let's go to that just a second, but I want to go back to something you said, which is if it makes you feel any better, um, my parents, I, we have progressed them throughout the years and mm-hmm. they don't listen to my podcast. It's it's just because they have better things to do. So, you know, if, you're, <laughs> if it makes you feel better, your dad hasn't read your book, but it's a little different angle. My parents just don't care about my work. Uh, this isn't a therapy session, but let's, let's go there, you know? So like the thing is about like, you know, of course now from the right side, there's all kinds of attacks around this concept of deconstruction and kind of throwing progressives under the bus, you know, for mm-hmm. leading people away from faith, quote unquote, whatever they want to say. But at the same time, there has to be some recognition that like there is a, a genuine uh, and authentic nature for people's faith journeys as they are becoming post evangelical, because you look at, for example, your relationship with your father, um, not to, you know, go super highlight on that, but you know, is it, are are people genuinely that authentic that they would be, you know, or, or, or inauthentic that they'd be willing to kind of throw away relationships or damage relationships or go through the turmoil of relationships, um, you know, when they're deconstructing their faith and looking for something different, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's more of commentary um, than a question. Just to say, you know, people genuinely care about what they're working through in their life, and yes, there is a relational cost to it. Yeah. And and I would say like, again, I'm right in the thick of it. So it's hard for me to hear people dismiss deconstruction when it's like, it's, I don't know how else to describe it, except to say it's, I've been in like psychic pain, you know, for a really long time trying to make it all work. And, and I'm at the point now where, um, you know, I would just say there are real 
consequences, right? Political, relational, social, theological, when uh, you are all in on authoritarian religion. Um, and that's what's what we're seeing happening. Like there are consequences when you go all in on that. Um, and I think, you know, people like my parents' generation, other people like they have to deal with some of these these consequences and um, yeah, I'm sorry. This is like really <laughs> where I'm at right now. And, um, you know, we haven't even mentioned my new book, which is about Dorothy Day, who's like this radical Catholic woman. And this is like how I sort of deal with uh, what it's been like to try and white, uh, write for white evangelicals for the past 10 years, deal with all this cognitive dissonance, deal with the actual impacts it has on my relationship with my family and all this stuff is, um, yeah, I think one route people can take and which I definitely did is we try and find other people of faith who are asking similar questions to us who have also felt lonely and isolated and like, am I the only one who is, is trying to take the words and ethics of Jesus seriously? Um, while surrounded by people who say they're Christians, but wow, their Christianity just seems to be a place where they can go on Sundays and just feel better about themselves and their life choices and and almost feel like they don't have to engage with the realities anymore of the world because of their faith. And so this is who Dorothy Day was. This is what she was writing about. And I think there's a real reason why I, and, and probably other people who come from my background are gonna be drawn to her and her writings. All right, so let's let's introduce the book. New book is Unruly Saint. Uh, this is fascinating look into the life, work, and theology of Dorothy Day. You wrote, I discovered Dorothy Day in the thick of my personal crisis moment. I had been raised in white evangelical church in the United States and had tried hard to be a very good Christian and spent a few years as a young woman trying to convert some of my neighbors, newly arrived refugees from Somalia, like any good missionary would. But instead of converting anyone, I was overwhelmed with the lived realities of my neighbors who were poor and marginalized in America. Take us a little deeper into um, that process of being personally drawn to Dorothy. Uh, like you just kind of shared, my my story is, you know, growing up in white evangelicalism, I was a strong, intense young woman. And uh, in, you know, our background denomination, women could not be pastors, but you could be a missionary. So that's uh, the route I took. I ended up uh, working with uh, refugees here in Portland, Oregon, while I was going to Bible college. And I just ended up being totally absorbed into their world and their life, ended up like living in low-income housing with them, experiencing America from a very different like social location than, you know, what I was born into. And I really had like two crises of faith at the same time, right? The first one was wait a minute, is my religion good news for anyone who's not exactly like me? And the second was, is my country, is my city good news for anyone who's not exactly like me? Um, and those two questions, right, uh, upended my life and also just created so much anxiety and loneliness in me because I couldn't ask those questions at my Bible college. I couldn't ask those questions at my church. Um, and so I found Dorothy Day in that point of my, my life. And she was someone who was asking those same questions and who was, you know, telling other people of faith. Um, and this started like in the 1930s, um, in 
in the United States, you know, in the shadow of the Great Depression, all of these societal questions, you know, like Christian and Catholic, like fascism was on the rise, like all, all these things were happening. And she was saying, like, what are people of faith supposed to do about all of this inequality and all of this injustice? you know, in our supposedly Christian nation. And so when I found her book, which is called The Long Loneliness, it's like the book she's most famous for. And it was her autobiography um, that she wrote in the 50s. I believe it was, I think it was published in the late 1950s. I'm sorry, I don't have that exact date. Um, But she, it was a New York Times bestseller. Like her spiritual memoir of what it was like to be her and have these questions has resonated for so many years with so many people. I just started reading her writings, immersing myself in them. And now, you know, she's starting to make some more headlines because she's actually in the process to be a canonized saint in the Catholic Church, uh, a process that is, you know, ongoing. And and we should, you know, probably hear confirmation of that in the next two to three years. So, uh, you know, I was getting really into her and it turns out she's a big topic of conversation. Um, like there's a Staten Island ferry that was just named after her in New York city. Uh, so she's, you know, her name is going to be with us for a while. And I think, yeah, she just has some amazing things to say actually for where we are in history right now. And because there's a lot of similarities to like 1930s, honestly. Before there was such a massive wave of people writing and speaking and living out their convictions as as post-evangelicals, um, that process of deconstruction and subsequent reconstruction uh, was lonely for for so many. Mm-hmm. Except, um, you know, as I look back at church history, I began to look at other figures in the past who felt strong convictions about the theological systems that had been handed down to them. And in the same way, you found Dorothy Day. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable how an individual bucking the conventional systems can really bring about uh, change. Um, so talk to us about some of the impact she made, um, you know, through her work. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I am the kind of person where I, and I think a lot of writers and, you know, artists and musicians are like this, but when I get really interested in something, like I go all in, you know? Um, And so that's what I did with Dorothy. And um, I, you know, I don't have a background in writing biographies, but I do have a background in writing essays and just uh, paying attention. And so when I really dove all in on her life, you know, I was just drawn to this firm commitment she had to living out her ethics and living out the ethics of Jesus. And that's what I knew about her. And what's fascinating with these sort of like important religious figures, especially as you mentioned, people who are sort of um, resisting like the dominant culture narrative within religion while also adhering to like the basic tenets of that religion. It's just such an interesting place to be. Because even if we look at Dorothy Day's canonization process, right, there's this pull to say, you know, at her core, she was a really good Catholic. She was a devout, pious woman who helped the poor. She fed the poor. She lived with the poor. um, And that's why she should be a saint. And she did that her whole life. And she never stopped being a Catholic. She never stopped attending mass. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. That's all true about her. At the same time, 
she, I think that's not the full story. I would say she was truly, if you look at her writings, she was obsessed with the plight of the worker in the United States and how badly uh, people were being treated in her country and how the absolute failure, right, of Catholic leadership, of political leadership to take care of people and to do what Jesus asked us to do. And so even things like, you know, Dorothy Day was famous for starting a newspaper, a monthly newspaper called The Catholic Worker. It was like an eight-page newspaper that she modeled after this uh, communist newspaper called The Daily Worker, and that started in 1933. Um so she would have these eight pages that she would just bust out on her typewriter. And she was a single mom. Like she was just doing all of this and it would be about the issues of the day and like what a Catholic theological response should be to the issues of homelessness, of rising eviction rates in New York city of, you know, black people being treated horribly by the U S government, like all this stuff. That's what she started with. Then her and her co-founder, Peter Morin, who's in a, incredible figure and I and I write about him a lot in Unruly Saint. He had this like encyclopedic knowledge of Catholic social teaching and Catholic history. And he really taught Dorothy like what we call the works of mercy, these really like simple concrete acts like uh, you know, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, housing the houseless, you know, visiting the sick, um, visiting those in prison. Like those should be the core tenets of religious faith in the United States. And so she was like, yeah, we should do that. And her and Peter in the beginning, in the 1930s, they were like, yeah, if we just talk to Catholics about this, they'll totally get on board. And everyone will like set aside a room in their house or their apartment and like house somebody that doesn't have a house right now. Because again, this was like, you know, the thick of the Great Depression. There were like thousands and thousands and thousands of men lining up every day for work, for bread. And so Dorothy and Peter were like, yeah, all we have to do is talk about this. And like, you know, Catholic parishes, like they're going to convert all the housing for priests and they're going to start housing people, right, who need housing. And um, they just had such faith in that because they're like, this is like who we are as Catholics. But you know what? That didn't happen. Uh, people did not do that. And mass parishes did not convert their housing for priests into housing for men, you know, during the Great Depression. And so out of just like utter necessity and the failure of people to show up, like, Dorothy Day just started begging for money and renting out tenement apartment buildings and housing people herself. And that's really how the Houses of Hospitality started, which is another important part of Dorothy Day's life and work. So it's interesting when people want me to talk about it. I feel this tension of like, of course, we want to talk about her being this amazing person. But so much of these things like the Houses of Hospitality, they really started because of the failure of people to respond in the ways that Dorothy was hoping they would. And so, um, yeah, I think that's just a really interesting part of looking at how her, her life's work really started. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. Did you know that CBB offers every participant an opportunity to create a comprehensive financial plan with a certified financial planner at Empower Retirement, free of charge? Learn more about completing your financial plan at churchbenefits.org backslash financial planning. As an incentive for our ordained participants, CBB will apply $500 to your retirement account when you complete a financial plan. It's a small, grant-funded way we can invest in your future. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website 
at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefit services, and financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, it's fascinating looking at a figure like her um, because, I mean, she grew up around World War I, the suffrage movement, um, Mm -hmm. influenza outbreak, the Great Depression, and so Mm -hmm. many other key social, cultural, and political shifts. Other people of faith also lived through these circumstances. But what, what do you think it was about her unique circumstances that convicted her to do this kind of work? I think that Dorothy, from a very young age, had this kind of personality where she was like, I refuse to accept that this is how the world has to be. Uh, yeah, she grew up like walking the streets of Chicago and seeing how, you know, the Polish immigrants were being treated. And she went to college and became friends with a ton of like leftist radicals. And they were saying like, it doesn't have to be this way. We could actually take care of each other. And so she was, she actually, you know, mostly wrote and edited for like socialist leaning magazines for a really long time. She ended up um, becoming a Catholic and it was actually this huge, huge, huge turning point in her life because all of her radical friends are like, that is an absolute betrayal of us. Um, You are, you know, joining the largest institution that oppresses right in the world. Like, how could you do this? And that's uh, a lot of what the log loneliness is about is her trying to explain to her radical friends, like why she felt this compulsion to join organized religion. And it truly was because not only was she motivated, like, I don't think the world has to be as bad as it is. Um, she was actually really overwhelmed by how beautiful the world is and and the good things of the world as well. And so she says when she was finally happy, she just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you to God. And she said, I, I have to join this religion. She also had this thing in her like, if she's going to do something, she needs to do it all the way. And so she's like, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be a Catholic because that's the church of the poor globally and also it's like you know the longest lasting institution of the christian church so she was like if i'm gonna do it, i need to do it all the way but for many many years she actually didn't have any friends who were catholic she would go to mass have a confessor for about five years she just truly didn't know any catholics um and i write about this in the book but a big turning point came for her when she started freelance writing for catholic magazines and she started um reporting on some of these big like labor strikes and labor marches where these workers in the United States were demanding just like really basic human rights for them and watching how the media treated them, watching how they were demonized. And she just thought, if if Jesus Christ was here today, 
he would be marching with these men. What am I doing? <laughs> like just sitting on the sidelines writing about this when everything within me is saying Jesus would be here. He would be with these poor bedraggled men who didn't have a place to lay their head at night. That's where he would be. And so she she went to the uh, National Cathedral Shrine in D.C., prayed um, to Mary and said, I don't know how to do this, but I have this desire to be united with the plight of the worker in the United States. And I also have this Catholic faith. And nobody, I don't know anybody who is marrying these two things together. Please show me a way forward. And then she went home to New York City and on her doorstep waiting for her was this guy named Peter Morin who said, I have this three-point plan to change the world, to make the world better for the worker um, that is rooted in Catholic social teaching. So it's just kind of this amazing story she has of literally saying, I don't know how to marry my leftist you know, ideologies with my heart and yearning towards God. And then boom, she met Peter Morin and, you know, the rest is kind of history. For those that aren't familiar um, with the work she established, the Catholic worker movement uh, with Peter um, in the early 1930s, give us a snapshot uh, of this work that she cultivated. Yeah. So, so Peter, um, he had read some of Dorothy's writings before. And so he was like, okay, my three part plan to change the world. One is first, you have to get the information out to the people. Um, so let's start a newspaper. And two, right, we want to start these houses of hospitality, right, where we we and then we invite other people, right, to open up your homes, open up your lives, to take care of the people. You know, this is what Jesus would do, right, in, in our world. And then third was um, this back to the land movement. How do we make work dignifying, uh, you know, returning to more agrarian roots? Peter was really not a fan of industrialization. He came from like a like an ancient farming family in France. And so that was his three-point plan to change the world. And they did start with the newspaper. Now, Peter really wanted Dorothy just to like reprint all of these like prose poems that Peter was writing. And Dorothy was like, no, <laughs> like I'll put one or two of those in each monthly paper, but I'm going to be like reporting on the labor strikes. I'm going to be interviewing Catholic priests. I'm going to be traveling the country, just wherever like especially labor issues were happening, Dorothy would travel there, cover them and talk about it through a Catholic lens. And then, you know, she was just this avid reader. So people started reading the paper. It like exploded. It very quickly became so much more popular than these communist newspapers out there. Um, you know, at, at some points, like there's a circulation of like 180,000 people reading this newspaper that Dorothy was writing like at her kitchen table. Um, and not only that, people would subscribe to the paper, read it, and then they pass along to their friends. Nobody had read anything like this before. And then, you know, both people experiencing poverty would start showing up at Dorothy's apartment. But people who were like the biggest thinkers, like intellectual theological voices of the day also started showing up because the depth and richness of their conversations happening in Dorothy and Peter's world were just unparalleled. So there's so many different you know, ways that this movement spread out. But yeah, they did eventually start, you know, renting apartment buildings, starting Catholic worker houses. And then those started springing up across the country as people would read Dorothy's paper, um, you know, become motivated themselves to start their own houses of hospitality. And yeah, I mean, it just, I, I think both Peter and Dorothy were shocked by how quickly and how popular 
their paper and their message was. And it doesn't mean everybody agreed with them. In fact, a lot of people like to read it because it was so challenging, but uh, it was just like the perfect time for a newspaper that was talking about the issues of the day while pointing back to this, you know, radical social Catholic teaching of caring for the poor among you. It was just the perfect time for this message. I think what's, you know, so fascinating about um, the words you've written about her, of course, you know, the words she wrote herself is, is you look at, you know, the complete and utter poverty that people are experiencing, especially around the Great Depression and how so many church leaders and church movements were uh, against um, FDR's New Deal and mm-hmm. its implications. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was providing resources and jobs uh, and welfare for people who needed it uh, so much. Um, I love this quote from the book um, you wrote, Jesus the Christ was an unskilled low-wage worker, so were all his friends. Not only would he be a part of the hunger march, Dorothy thought, but he but she squinted her eyes just right. She could actually see the face of Christ and people straggling past her, that this was not what she wrote in her reportage. Not yet anyways. For now, she had no one to tell her about her divine revelation, so she kept it to herself. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper, just, you know, about how her perspective of others, you know, motivated her profound work. Yeah, I think Dorothy from a very early age just had this profound sense of the inherent human dignity of people who were at like the bottom of the social hierarchy, right? And so she just had this innate sense that these people were made in this image of the divine. And honestly, when she started getting pretty overwhelmed, because it's it's overwhelming what happened to her, right? When she started the newspaper, people started showing up and asking for a place to live, asking for help. Her her life quickly became just like chaos. And, and there's some really positive parts of that. Um, but she also wrote in her in her diaries, and there's actually you know a published collection of her diaries now called The Duty of Delight, and uh, I just love it so much. I love this insight into her inner world. You know, she was so overwhelmed by it, but what stayed with her was this sense that um, in the face of anyone, anyone, even somebody who you know is drunk out of their mind. Um, and is falling down and just hasn't bathed in weeks and weeks. Um, like that is Christ. Like that person you meet is Christ. And like Dorothy would just sit down and just chat with them for forever. But what's fascinating is she really identified with them. I was just rereading like some of her early diary entries and she would say like me and these two guys, uh, like we're all mentally ill. Like she, these two men who didn't have homes, who were just like would spend all day like ranting and raving about whatever issue they were ruminating on. You know, Dorothy's like, we're all the same. Like all of us are struggling. Like all of us don't know how to live in this world so full of suffering. Like we're all the same. And and basically, she's saying we're all worthy of love, and we all are loved. And so I really resonated with that as somebody, again, who grew up in white evangelicalism. And I was told, you know, like, Jesus loves you, all this stuff. When I started volunteering with refugees and then ended up living with them, teaching English classes, sending my kids to school with, you know, in low-income neighborhoods, you know, it's predominantly immigrant and refugees, people who are not white, not Christian, not middle class, Um 
I was told, right, I since I'm a white evangelical, I go in there and I bring Christ with me. I bring God with me because I have the good news and I have the truth and all this stuff. But instead, what I was like experiencing in my body is when I would hang out with my neighbors, when they would cook me food, when they would cook for my kids, when they would show up when I was sick. Um, I was like, I don't feel like I am bringing Christ with me. I, I feel like I am sitting in the presence of the divine. I, I feel like I am experiencing who Jesus was as a person in this living room, you know, eating Nepali food, eating Libyan food. Like, and I didn't have anybody I could share that with kind of similar to Dorothy, right? When she was in that period of she had converted to Catholicism, but didn't know how to marry all these different parts of herself together. You know, I experienced that as an evangelical and it was just such a relief to read the writings of Dorothy and be like, not the only one who's felt like this and who has had to come to the realization like I am not bringing God with me I am not bringing Christ with me anywhere like Christ is here Christ is at work in the world and where I see Christ at work is with the people that society has deemed like the least valuable and that's where I have found Christ at work in the world and so I related so much to that in in Dorothy's work and I think people throughout you know the past, you know, decades or so have also resonated with that. Well, let's shift to focusing on the implications of her work and worldview today. Um, you said that, um, that the ways in which uh, Day and her fellow workers both found the love of God and then expressed it for their neighbors during a time of great social, political, and economic and spiritual upheaval would become a model of activism for decades to come. If mm -hmm. she were living in our era, um, what do you think she'd be investing her time and attention? I mean, it's fascinating. Sometimes I'm like, what would Dorothy Day think about Twitter? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't actually know. You know, I think there's a part of her, like it, it's just not anyone who would be able to like have someone come to your house and be like, I think we should start a newspaper on the issues of the day, you know, from a Catholic perspective who could just sit down and just bust out an eight-page newspaper that's extremely well-reported, well-written, funny, um, and has these, like, deep theological and intellectual, like, underpinnings. Like, she really was an incredible mind, and she didn't just live in her mind. She also, like, embodied what it meant to live out these values, and that's such a rare combination. I will say that um, as I was researching, right, the parallels to what was kind of happening in the 1930s and everything that had led up to that, including, like you mentioned already, Dorothy Day did survive World War I. There's like this such optimism about the world being able to be a better place before, you know, the Great War. And then all these radicals and all these bohemians she was hanging out with, like they either like went off to war, they, they died, or they were like the U.S. government was investigating them for being leftists, or they just sort of like lost their idealism and kind of sunk into cynicism and despair. Then we had this, uh, you know, the, the Spanish flu, the influenza that Dorothy actually became a nurse and it helped care for people who were dying at that time. So she also experienced a, a you know, a historic pandemic. And then, um, you know, this economic upheaval with 
the Great Depression and then all this political stuff happening, there were lots of people promoting fascism and like religious authoritarianism. And she was having so many of those conversations, you know, interpersonally in her neighborhood, but also like writing about it in her paper. And I'm just like, wow, (laughs) there's some real uh, commonalities to what we're experiencing today. And so I don't know what Dorothy would think of this moment, but I think there's a lot of value in going back and especially looking at some of her early writings. Again, if you've heard of Dorothy Day, you probably have this image of her sort of as an older woman with a stern face, looking very like looking like a saint. You know, she dressed in like drab, dark clothes, always braided her hair, um, went to mass. And she also, there's lots of famous pictures of her getting arrested when she was in her seventies, even, you know, getting arrested, you know, for the rights of migrant workers, getting arrested for just like basic human rights for people. Um, and that's the image a lot of people have of her, but I think it's, it's worth, it's really worth going back and looking at what she was like um, in the 1930s when she was in her 30s and when she was really starting her life's work. And um, her writings are so powerful because they are so specific to what's actually impacting marginalized and vulnerable people in the United States. Paying attention to that, um, I, I think it's it's still really important for us to be doing that work today. I think what's fascinating is you look at a figure like like Dorothy and you think about that even in her time, she had people that were pushing back and um, criticizing her work. And yet, you know, to this day, this type of work is is vilified by many people within the Christian um, worldview, which is just baffling. To, to think about, you know, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. seems to be such a direct connection with the teachings of Jesus mm-hmm. um, and his call for his followers. So, you know, what do you think we could learn from her experience and her response to those that, I guess, for lack of a better term, stood against her work and, and how it might motivate um, our grit um, and our persistence today as uh, so much of, of the work that's being done um by, you know, I hate to label as modern progressive Christians today, but modern progressive Christians today. Yeah, I think this is a really important question and one that some of us like have to wrestle with all the time, just because it's our life, our family, our our background, our culture, our community. But, um, you know, what's really fascinating is Dorothy Day, you know, decided to title her spiritual autobiography the long loneliness. And I, and I think we just kind of need to sit with that a little bit um, because to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, to follow Christ and to be surrounded by people who also claim to do that and yet resist at almost every turn, right? Like these practical applications of what are just known as the works of mercy um, it creates such intense cognitive dissonance. And so Dorothy wrote about that. Um, one of the ways she found to deal with that is to find a community of like-minded people to keep doing the work. Um, you know, she was encouraged by the people who read her writings, who resonated with it. 
but she went through some real periods of um, like when World War II happened, for instance, the Catholic worker Dorothy Day specifically is the only time she really laid down like this mandate. But she said all the Catholic worker, you know, houses and papers that were springing up, um, they all had to be pacifists. And obviously, World War II, uh, most people did not um have a pacifist stance and so she not only got on you know the u.s government's radar became an enemy of the state the fbi has an extremely long file on dorothy day and it started when she um was testifying to congress that uh you know catholics should have a religious exemption from the draft to be in the war um and she lost so much support like the the just support plummeted and uh you know she kept going and that's part of what the long loneliness is about and so i think just saying like it's gonna be hard for us i dorothy tried to tell us with her title like you are signing up for a life that can be profoundly lonely at times if you choose to keep wanting to follow jesus in the kind of climate we are now which is very similar to the 30s when when dorothy first started writing however what i think is fascinating is you know a few, you know, like a, a little while after uh, The Long Loneliness came out, Dorothy was like, you know, if I could write another book, what I would call my book would be The Duty of Delight. And so kind of like that first half of her life is The Long Loneliness. The second half would be called The Duty of Delight because she recognized the older you get, the more you can become so overwhelmed and just so tired of the suffering, right? If you are listening to the voices of the oppressed for any amount of time, right? It's going to add up. It's going to become exhausting. It's going to make you cynical. It's going to make you full of rage. And all of these things are really normal and actually really appropriate responses to terrible things happening. But she said, you know, the older you get, if you don't want to just sort of descend into cynicism, you have to fight delight you have to fight to find beauty in the world to celebrate it to look for it and so you know even really simple things like she loved the sounds of her neighbors you know having a party she loved a good cup of coffee she loved pie she loved russian novelists she loved going to plays in new york city um you know she she found these moments of delight and for her they became a spiritual practice I think for any of us, I know I'm I'm really in this space. I've really struggled, especially after seeing like a conservative reactions to COVID, you know, the Trump years, all this stuff. I'm I have really struggled with both depression and anxiety, and and reading Dorothy's words really helped me. And also, this idea of the duty of delight is something um, I continually fall back on. How can I? you know, pursue this in my life. I think I like to joke, I, I more have a propensity for like the duty of despair. <laughs> so if you're like me and you have that, I think it's worth listening to Dorothy as she got older and saying, this is what I would change. She didn't really say she would change like her leftist ideals or any of that stuff, which maybe some conservatives wish she had said. But what she said is, you know, I would like to call my next book, The Duty of Delight. And I think we should pay attention to that. Um, who are the Dorothy days of today that we should be paying attention to? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think that right now I'm just sort of, 
um, grappling with what Brian McLaren calls the constricted intellectualism of white evangelicalism. So I, you know, went to Bible college and thought I was really engaging with the scriptures and engaging with the history of Christianity, um, but really was all within a very pretty narrow framework of certain publishers, certain denominational backgrounds. And so now I'm really focusing on um, how do I broaden my own understanding of what the Christian faith looks like. So obviously I am Protestant and evangelical. So looking at people like Dorothy Day, who come from a Catholic perspective has been really important, but look, you know, reading uh, womanist theologians are, is so important for me right now. Uh, liberation theology in general, you know, both from the Latin X perspective, but also people like James Cone. Um, I, I think it's so important if you grew up like me and you still have an interest in how <laughs> does Christianity have anything to say to what Howard Thurman calls, you know, the disadvantage of the world, right? People with their backs against the wall. It's like, yeah, we can read Howard Thurman. Like black theologians have been doing this work for so long and people like me are so late to the game. And so, you know, I think immersing yourself in the writings of people like Dorothy Day, but going you know, way beyond that. And even reading the voices that maybe she should have been reading, you know, at the beginning of her life as well. I think we like to have heroes that are perfect, but that's not how anybody is. And Dorothy had real limits to her imagination because she was, you know, a white woman from kind of a lower middle-class background. And it shouldn't be it shouldn't be weird to say that, of course, she had some limitations just based on her own background. And later in her life, you know, she started to engage with some of the brilliant thinkers and writers in Harlem, you know, just a few blocks from where the Catholic worker was located in New York City, you know, and she wasn't engaged with them in the thick of the 1930s. And, you know, later in her life, she started to read those writings and be like, there's so much I've missed. There's so much I didn't know. And I hope. I and other people can just model a life where we move forward saying, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I didn't know. And I hope I can stay curious and open to learning. All right. Last question. You were obviously drawn to her, her work and theology as a formative figure um, in your own life and work. Uh, what's something new you learned about her in your research for this book? Well, I think for me, it was interesting to learn a lot more about her relationship with Peter Morin. Um, and so I learned a lot about Peter and how his knowledge of theology and history um, is really what enabled Dorothy to do what she did. And so, it, you know, she always said, like, Peter sh should be a saint, like Peter is really the one behind all of this. Um, you know, Peter, she always made sure to say he's the co-founder of the Catholic worker movement. And before I really studied her, I was like, is this just somebody who's being like weirdly humble or somebody who, you know, is a woman in a patriarchal society and a patriarchal religion, right? Who just has to say like, no, actually a man helped do all this. But the more I, I studied, the more I just thought Peter Morin is a truly brilliant person who um, is, is very similar to some of the stories of saints we have. I, I would say both Peter and Dorothy have some hallmarks 
of what I would call neurodivergence, just different ways of thinking and being in the world. And um, there's just so much we can learn from that. I think the other thing is, is kind of connected to Peter Morin is both Dorothy and Peter, like, especially Dorothy, she didn't like to call herself a lot of things, but she had no problem with calling herself a Christian anarchist. And you just don't hear a lot of people talking about especially Catholic anarchists. Um, and I feel like there's a lot we could learn from studying what are some of the, like the foundational principles of anarchism and what that could look like um, if we married that with our faith. I'm not sure people are ready to have that conversation. I, I don't think they were really ready even when Dorothy was trying to have it. But that is a really foundational part to both Peter and Dorothy's um, way of being in the world. You mentioned like, you know, conservative Christians not liking the New Deal, not liking FDR, being against all these things that were just kind of giving basic human rights to people. And the funny thing about Dorothy is, you know, she got arrested and beat up for, uh, you know, protesting for uh, the white women's right to vote, you know, for suffragettes. And she never voted. Like she was absolutely brutalized by the police to get other people the right to vote. But she was like, no, I don't, I don't really see the point in voting when it doesn't actually enact that much change. And she also knew the limitations, right? When women were finally allowed to vote, it was only white women. And so she was sort of like, what's, going on here this isn't actually that great of a thing if it's not for all people if it's not for all the disadvantaged of the world and same thing with the new deal they were like um you know peter morton especially was like a personalist and individualist he was like we need to take care of each other if the government does it then the church is not going to step up and dorothy was like yeah i agree with that and yet at the same time the second welfare was passed she was out there signing up every person she knew to get those benefits. And so I'm like, she's, it's, it's very complicated. It's very fascinating to me. And um, I was pretty surprised by um, Christian anarchy and, and just how we don't talk about it. And I, I want to keep thinking about it. Our guest is D.L. Mayfield. The book is Unruly Saint, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and its Challenge for Our Times. If you want to stay connected with D.L.'s work, visit dlmayfield.com. Dale, it's an honor to sit down with you. Thank you for your remarkable invitation to continue to hunger for God, but ensure our neighbors never hunger for bread. Thanks so much for having me. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study, title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. 
Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.